Every single day, our young folks wake up in a world of uncertainty and they figure out how to survive. Every single day. This is not new. Food inequities is not new. George Floyd is not new, right? I think it's given some people to talk about it now or say we're taking a stand. And that's why I'm, I'm always going to continue to use that our young folks are assets and talent. And that's what we need to see. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. As we get into full swing of summer in Boston, we're speaking with local leaders about what they're doing to make Boston a stronger, healthier, and more livable city. Today, I'm joined by Robert Lewis Jr., new president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Robert and I discussed the ways in which youth activism shaped his career, the important life lessons learned from team sports, and how the language we use shapes the expectations we set for the next generation. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. Really, I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Jill, for asking me to join you today. I'm looking forward to it. So now, Robert, you are the new president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Boston. That's a pretty new role that you're stepping into, right? Yeah, three months in, Jill. I'm three months in. Oh, my goodness. It's so amazing. You left the base, which you founded... And prior to that, you founded South End Baseball. Th- those are now, you're moving on from those two things, which are critically important in the city, have an unbelievable impact in the city, and also probably have shaped your view of what it's like to be a kid in, in this city. How does it feel to move from those two like behemoths and amazing things um, over to start running the Boys and Girls Club, which is critical to the city? It, it's so amazing when I think of it. You know, one is... Back in the day, I was a Boys and Girls Club kid while I was playing sports growing up in East Boston. You know, so the power that sports had in my life and also the power of the Boys and Girls Clubs because they had a lot of sporting programs that I was involved in. And, you know, and then at 18 years old, coaching baseball from the Via Victoria community in the South End, starting South End Baseball, it's been fundamentally a major part of my life. So I started, you know, 44 years ago, and even till today, I'm still coaching. So, you know, even though I may not be actively day-to-day in the South End, or same thing with the base, but this opportunity of coaching and staying involved in the young person's life, because sports is what shaped my life and gave me, like, a lot of the fundamentals and the building blocks to where I am today. And I want to keep that in my life because it is an opportunity of providing access and resources to young folks, in particular, young folks of color that grow up through our neighborhoods. Robert, I agree with you. I was a soccer player my entire life, and I I can't look back at my childhood without thinking about the impact that it had on me and the the lessons that it taught me and the community that it brought me into, you know, all the way through college. And so I agree with you that sports is so important in so many kids' lives, and we should really be giving them that gift. It also makes me think about you moving to the Boys and Girls Club, where it's about lots of different extracurriculars and passions that kids can pursue, whether they're a scientist or an artist or an athlete. or And so do you feel like this gives you an even bigger platform to deliver, kind of to meet kids where they are, whatever their interests are, and, and to, but to shape it in the same way that you shaped the base and, and South End Baseball? Gil, you hit it. It is an incredible platform 
with us having nine clubs throughout the city and, the, you know, Boston's diverse neighborhoods, the opportunity at the base we were serving about 1,200 kids, the Boys and Girls Club are reaching and upwards of like, if it's about five to 6,000 members, and then the additional kids that we serve, about another 5,000. So I look at this as you're exactly right, a building block. But you, you hit on it when you start thinking about the services and the resources we provide. If it's in leadership, if it's in music, arts, culture, technology, science. What, what I share in my three months here at the club is what we're really doing is not about providing programs and services. What we're doing is building Boston and the Commonwealth's talent pipeline. That's what we're doing. The business community is saying their concern is the shortage of a talent pipeline. What we are, are if we're talking about 12,000 young folks, we need to invest in the resources and development of them to be active participants and citizens in Boston and the Commonwealth's 21st century economy. So the programs and the resources, the leadership, the mentoring, the support is incredible. But also what inspires me is the partnership around STEM or the partnerships around financial literacy. You know, in the partnerships around visiting colleges and careers. This is what I think this bully puppet is, is Boston has this incredible pipeline. I love, Jill, that we say each year we're going to hope the number of young folks who come here to attend college or higher ed, we hope they stay. But we also have a pipeline in Boston that's already here. So why not invest in them and give them a reason to stay so, one, they, again, can participate in the economy, two, they're going to get jobs and wages that if they choose to, they can live here in Boston. And there's going to be no better group of folks to pay it forward for our next generation to look up to from the young folks and the neighbors that have grown up through the clubs but are still living in their neighborhoods. So you're right. What incredible pipeline and platform that the club has in terms of like really driving change throughout our city of Boston. So I recently heard you describe the Boys and Girls Club that way, particularly talking about the pipeline. And I, I kind of perked up because I thought, you know, I you don't hear educators in this system and many community leaders who are working with our youth talking about it in those terms. And yet what we do hear often is people complaining that so many kids in the city don't have opportunity beyond, you know, two or three blocks, you know, around which they live. And and what you're saying is actually the Boys and Girls Club is going to give them optics and experience and inspiration that's way beyond those two to three blocks. And, and that truly that's what kids need in part in order to imagine what the possibilities are, you know, and that we really, you can be the connective tissue between Rapid7, who is in, you know, cybersecurity, or we have great financial services and advertising, and, you know, we got some good retailers here too. But it's incredible that unless we have bridges like what you are creating at Boys and Girls Club, it's very hard for kids in the city to access those opportunities. It's almost like we're living in two separate worlds. And Jill, that's the thing is we actually know we are living in two separate worlds. When we think of life expectancy from Roxbury, you know, to Beacon Hill, what are we talking, a mile and a half? Or from Huntington Ave, we have some of the world's greatest hospitals. And across the street, we have Mission Hill housing development with a high rate of asthma, right? So we know that in some ends, too often we're trying to fix the young folks in the community 
we got to fix the systems, right? It's the systems that need to change. But also, Boston and this Commonwealth has rich resources, and you hit it. It's about the access. It's the access to what exists. It's interesting in our city how our city will say we're the best, we're the leader, we're the innovator, we're the first, we're the most creative. But then we pick industries, right? So we'll pick industries like higher ed, arts, life sciences, biotech, this, that. But why can't we be the best, the innovator, the first, the leader of youth success? Because the resources are here. So this is, you hit it, we're trying to make sure, even though we're in neighborhoods, our young folks have to have exposure outside into Boston's community. And our role and responsibility, too, is to bring the best of Boston to the neighborhoods as well, for them to have a chance to witness and experience this talent pipeline that's just in their back door. And when you think of all of it, Jill, we're what, a quarter of a mile to three to four miles away? We can do this. We can do this. So I want I want to ask you more about how you do that, and we'll get back to that. I want to also kind of level set and help folks who don't know you understand where you're coming from, because you were, were you born in the city? I was. I moved to the city when I was six months old. You're six. <laughs> so your first six months somewhere else. You were from six months old. You lived in Boston. You were the first black family, I think, your family to move into Eastie, into East in Boston. Average housing projects in East Boston. And and you grew up here in the '60s and '70s, which were a really uh, crazy time to be a family in the school system, for sure. Yeah. Listen, we were. You know, we were the first black family in the Maverick Street housing projects in East Boston. And, you know, it's an interesting thing when you're growing up in school and you learn all these things as you're getting older, but didn't realize there was like maybe one to one to two black kids in each classroom. I never had a black teacher throughout public schools, never seen one, actually, you know, while I went to school. Um, and then what was interesting, as I grew up in East Boston, then I played Little League, there was like like only one black per Little League team, Right. And again, you don't know these things when you're growing up. And then what you realize is that in the 70s, with court-ordered busing was taking place in East Boston. In May of 1976, Jill, I was firebombed out of my home. My best friend, who was white, threw a Molotov cocktail bomb and firebombed us. And my family, actually, and we lived in East Boston. So there were a number of black families who grew up in East Boston who got firebombed during the time of busing. We weren't getting bused in. We lived there in that community, got firebombed. And then we moved to the South End via Victoria. And I got a letter that summer that said where I could pick up the bus to get bus from the South End to East Boston. And what I did, Jill, for two years, my junior and senior year, I took the old Dover Street, you know, um, elevated T-stop, went to State Street, got to Maverick. I showed up at Maverick. A police officer escorted me on the MBTA bus escorted me up the street, and for two years, I greeted the school buses that were getting bussed in to East Boston. And during my time there, I started the Roots Club at East Boston High School, but it was the first time that, you know, it was about being active. My high school was 1,500 students at Eastie, but there was 1,460 that were white. So there were only 40 kids of color until busing took place, and I wanted to ensure that the young folks that were getting bussed in were going to be the folks that were going to get a quality education. But my firebombing 
shifted my life. At 16, I said, if I'm going to get firebombed because of my race, for the rest of my life, my work is going to be about how do I convene communities. That's about bringing people together, not dividing folks. And I've seen how busing divided some of my best friends, kids I played sports with. And, and that was hard. I won't lie to you, even being you know, 62 today, to think back and to realize the number of friends I lost because of busing, but also some of the folks that I got closer to that stood for what was right versus what was wrong. So I've had an interesting upbringing, and when I moved to the South End, I was blessed at 16, 17 to meet uh, Mel King and Joyce King, who took me under their wing, Ray and Gloria Whitehammond, I met at 20 years old, that took me under their wing. So my upbringing to where I am today professionally has been with some of the greatest leaders that Boston have had, and I feel like it's been a blessing to have done this work leading to what I'm doing now. But you just said so much, and I need to go back because I, I think about this all the time. How much of where BPS is today is a result of the decision that Judge Garrity made in 1974? What led up to that? It's just interesting to me, right, because you're describing a childhood in East Boston where you were friends with other kids. And and I don't know how much you then prior to the order and how much you know unrest there was in the school system. How much did you feel of that frustration before busing happened versus obviously afterwards, it was just you, your friends turned against you. Did the order create a massive disruption in people's personal lives? You know, what was interesting, before the order, I went to middle school and there were young black kids that got bussed into the Donna McCain Middle School. And that was for years, so that wasn't ever an issue. I think what was interesting for me was that court-ordered busing, you know, was really dealing around quality education. I don't know how, growing up in public housing, why folks in public housing got angry and was firebombing their neighbors, right? It didn't happen. I mean, yes, they were protesting at the school. I can tell you, they tipped over buses, burnt buses, all that stuff happened when I got back to school. But... You know, my family and other families being firebombed out, that it was happening in May, June, July of the summer of 76, before we got to school, because East Boston didn't have busing until September of 76. It was a disruption because all of a sudden, I'm living in Maverick Street Projects before we moved out. We had police officers, the tactical police force, in the middle of the projects where black folks were on one side, white kids were on the other side, and Jill... It is the craziest thing that you're in high school, you're playing football, and you have kids blocking and playing with you, and that evening you go back home into the projects, and we're divided on two sides calling each other's names. Yeah. And then the next day you're in school and you're teammates. Did folks behave differently when you were in school together? Was this, I would imagine people were having real identity complexes trying to figure out how to marry, how they felt internally with what the world was telling them to feel? It, it had to be because, you know, my best friend who firebombed me, right, which is, you know, even now hard to talk about. But what I learned over the years is that there were a group of 14 other young white kids, and he was white, who said to him, are you an end lover or are you one of us? And I'm just trying to think of him being 16 
whatever the pressure he was under, that he had to do that. But it still happened. He still did it, which changed my life and changed the outcomes of our relationship forever. But, you know, I'm looking at that. What was that peer pressure he had to go through? But also what was happening that others were doing it to other black families as well. And there's so much that I've been following around looking back at court-ordered busing and looking back at my story and my family's story. And uh, I'll be honest, Jill, about a year or two ago, I started looking back at old press and old like news. And it was surprising when the news was out in front of my school, kids that I'd grown up with up until today, all of a sudden I'm seeing them on news, on video, and the comments they're making about black people was like hard for me. Again, I, I'd like to say I use this, and there were a lot of also great friends that stood by me, that stood with us, and that I'm still close with them today. But um, I'm not going to lie to you. It taught me a lot. It taught me about how I had a social education on right and wrong and how that education during my last two years, in the weirdest way, prepared me for who I am and like my life choices. And it's not... It's so funny when I look at the career in the places I've worked, all of them had to do with justice or equity. And I don't think that's coincidental from a little bit of what happened in my life that it was just, how do I bring that lens to the work that I'm doing? And, and you said something earlier, and I want to make sure, as I said, as we look at the bully puppet of the Boys and Girls Club, the other part of this work that excited me, Joe, was I wanted to be a voice and a, you know, really a, a, a visible and physical voice and face for justice for our young folks in the city. You know, because I love and care for all of them. And we need to stand up, and it is the moment right now for us to stand up. And I think, Joe, you may have known this, but um, a couple of years ago, I caught COVID. Yes, I know. It was horrible. I was too. on a ventilator for 12 days fighting for my life. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was to recover so I can get back out here and fight and be on the forefront for what was right and just for our young folks in our communities. I'm really sorry that you went through that, too. It just it must have been horrible. How do you ponder all of the things that you've been through in your life, and how do you think about priorities for, for yourself and for the work that you're going to do now, as well as for the city? Because I would imagine, I mean, I wasn't here in the 70s and the 60s, but I would imagine when I'm living in here today in Boston is the aftermath of a lot of that, you know, and you're working with families. We work with families. What are we sitting in that we're not talking about? You know, what are the things that we're not addressing? Because we still have a floundering school district, you yes. know, in, in many respects. We're not doing what we should be doing for so many kids in the city. And how do you think about your work now? What are the things that we should all know? so that we can do a better job at what you want to do, which is help these 12,000 young folks and maybe more. How do we help them be super successful in the city? You know, I think there's a few things, Jill, that resonates with me at first. And one of the things at first is language matters, right? How are young black and brown kids have been labeled is under-resourced, you know? It's all deficit language when you're defining young black and brown kids. Like, language matters, and we got to stop that. Our young folks are an incredible talent. They're assets. They're resilient. They have struggled. They've overcome. So language first matters. 
The second thing for me, what I think about all the time, is how do we have this great business community in Boston with some of the greatest colleges in academia, with some of the greatest health systems, and then we have young folks and families. I think this is going to be when this collective action that we come together, and that's why I'll say urban talent, because we've got to invest in folks. If your zip code does not determine your success, if you have dreads, it does not determine your success. If Like, what is this thing like, this kid comes from a single home, female head of a household? What does that mean? Or they receive free and reduced lunches. What does that mean? So all of a sudden, those are things that label our kids, and in particular, black and brown kids, as if they're less than. So I think one of the beginnings, Jill, and listen, you've done this. And I know you're interviewing me, but you're working the schools, you fight for our kids, you know, for healthy kids and for food. I, I mean, I, I'm giving you credit. You're a leader and you don't mind stepping out. I think our city needs to step up. We can't be afraid to talk about race. Why are we, though? Are we afraid because of what happened the first time? Like, why, why are we so afraid? Because I agree with you. We don't feel like we have permission to talk about perspectives, right? Like we're doing work right now to understand, like, what's the perspective of an immigrant coming to the city and trying to enroll in school? And how does that affect their life? It's very different, right? But we can't. Absolutely. But it's, not, you know, but we're so careful about how we talk about all of our kids and on end of their families. And I agree with you. Like, we don't talk about them as, all, as though they all have gifts, and, you know, they're all, you know, they're all meant to do something in this world. Maybe they do know what their purpose is. Maybe they don't. We have to help them uncover it. But they all have a purpose and they don't know it. But they all have this incredible talent. Think it is. Every single day, our young folks wake up in a world of uncertainty. Yeah. And they figure out how to survive. <laughs> they do. Every single day. This is not new. Food inequities is not new. George Floyd is not new. Right. I think it's given some people to talk about it now or say we're taking a stand. And that's why I'm, I'm always going to continue to use that our young folks are assets and talent. And that's what we need to see. The other thing, too, is some of the changes, you know, we can't be afraid. Like and I think of companies, businesses or others, we can't be afraid to reach out to folks in the youth service sector, the nonprofit sector to really think about coming in and talking about the young folks. Not being afraid to say, hey, these young folks are ready if you know to go to college. And if it's not college, to get a career. Like, let's be real. You know, let's make sure that we're providing that access to folks. Our young folks are waiting for us as the adults to finally step up and have the guts to lead. So, you know, they are, you know, we are who they're waiting for. And I think for me, Jill, it's like this podcast right now. It's about collective energy, collective leaders, being not being afraid to talk about the real issues, but really the real opportunities that's going to move the needle. You know, we, in this city, we have so many nonprofits that we're all saying we're doing great. You'll get an annual report. The Boston Foundation, we give all these annual reports, but the needle's not moving. But everyone's saying this. So, so some of it is, you know, listen, I'm running a nonprofit and we have to raise money. I get this. But some of it is, how are we fixing problems? And that's what we need to do. Invest in fixing these problems and moving the agenda. Because if we don't do it now, Jill, what I worry about is we lose this generation. Yeah, I worry about it too. And if we don't do it now, listen, 
it's bad enough that a year or two ago, bread and gas and everything was so expensive. Look at today. I know. How does somebody, how does somebody survive? And then if we don't do this, folks, we're really going to be talking about not just not in the next five years, when we're going to look at what our community looks like, Boston is going to look completely different. Right. Well, there's already, we already know there's an exodus, right? Like Boston Public Schools has lost 5,000 kids at least during the pandemic. There, yes. and, you know, and I think I just read something that Massachusetts is, I think, in the top five states that people want to leave right now. We got to dig into that. I'm not sure why. But here, here's the thing. You talked about money. You, you did work at the Boston Foundation for quite a while. And so you worked at an institution where you were meeting with and working with people across the city who had resources, right? And they were, and they were, they'd go to the Boston Foundation to help manage the resources and deploy their resources for good. And, and I do think everyone has good intentions. I've also learned running this foundation that you can spend money lots of different ways and you can spend the save dollar and get an, an unbelievable return and it be completely effective and you can spend a dollar and, and get virtually nothing from it. And so what did your work at Boston Foundation teach you and how do you think differently? I mean, you're now an operator, you're hands-on, you're like in the lives of 12,000 kids. How do you how do you think about spending those dollars and what do we need to do to deploy resources differently in the city so that more of them are backing these assets of the future? You know, that's, that's so interesting. And when I went into philanthropy at the Boston Foundation, when I'll give Paul Grogan credit, I remember Paul said to me, I said, Paul, I don't have experience in philanthropy. He said, but you have experience, Robert, in community change. He says, help me think of how our dollars can be about community change. So one of the first things, Jill, what I did do, I actually shifted our workforce, you know, because we had a lot of folks who were coming up that was just, you know, and listen, smart, great folks. But they knew how to run a process of a grant process, but they didn't know what was happening on the ground. And we brought some extraordinary community leaders in to join our staff. That was first. The second thing we did is we said that my program officers and folks had to be out in the community and like 50 percent of their work. Instead of folks always coming to foundation, meet with folks out in the community and find out what's happening. And then we did a few other things. We shifted some of our philanthropy and we created you know, a small grassroots fund, a little equity fund before folks were using the word equity. And what I found, it was organizations that were doing great things, but only needed $2,500 to $5,000 that can move the needle, right? And we actually went out and we put money out on the streets. And then what we started to do, and which you know, the foundation would do a lot of forums and things at the foundation, we started bringing some of those forums out to the community, right? Because our folks needed to know. And what I try to do at the foundation, again, give Paul credit, is how did we activate the community, the community around their knowledge sharing, their the work they can do together, not using grants as a way of trying to get partnerships happening, but how do we turn around and say, how are we going to address an issue and let the community come together? And when we did this work around gang violence, we picked five neighborhoods in Boston and we picked five independent nonprofits. And we made a significant contribution of, at the beginning of about 300,000 to each group. And they had to come up with their advisory group. They had to come up with who the organizations they were gonna work with. 
And how are they looking to deal and address this? And I remember community folks, and again, being somebody who grew up in a community, turning around and saying, Robert, thank you for believing in us and for us being able to drive the answers instead of us going in and doing an LOI and you telling us what we needed to do. So, so some of it, Jill, we know this. If you want to know what mothers think, go ask them. You don't have to hire a researcher to come back with an opinion when moms can tell you how they think. I've never met a mom or grandma or an aunt or uncle that has a theory of change on their refrigerator for their kids. <laughs> they figure this out every day of how to make it work, and so many of the answers are on the ground. So, listen, Boston is too small. We know who's legit. We know who does the work. We know who doesn't. But also, let's not be afraid to go on the ground, meet with the leaders, and how do we support and enrich them with the resources for them to be successful? Because we have to move the needle. Okay, but let me pick your brain for a second, because I agree with you. Boston's really small. You just said we know who's legit. I would say, how do you know? Because if you're right, if you're in the game of supporting work, right, where you want it to be transformational, where you want it to have deep impact, but you honestly don't have the time. And so you're just, you know, how how do folks like that know who's legit? How do they find people like you who maybe they just come to you? But how do they find, you know, how many folks are there running community entities totally focused on the, you know, betterment of our community who are of the community, who understand the community, who spend all day talking to moms and dads and folks who are employed in the community, how, how many of them are there and how do you find them? How do you know who's legit? Yeah, you know, it, it's so great. I love this because I was talking to someone last week about this. I says, how do we start sometimes building this network or a few folks that we know? And how do we ask of Robert to say, Robert, I'm looking to meet with certain people or meet, looking to meet with folks that are making change. And how do we work to support you? I always used to say the foundations couldn't just be about funding folks. But how do we expect those that we fund to help us move the needle? So what I used to like at the foundation, I would meet with the folks I funded and says, if I don't know, who are two or three people out there doing incredible work we need to know? You know what's funny? They were on the ground. They know. I'll tell you an institution, and you and I were talking about this before we got started. I think sometimes we lose track the power of like sports and the power that sports plays. The power that young folks who start sports at six years old in the Little League, and they did it to 12. And they know their coaches. And then you go to Babe Ruth or older. So the role that, like, baseball can play from 6 to 18 in a neighborhood, you know the coaches, you know the families. And what's crazy about it, they're all volunteers. Right. They're all volunteers. You're talking about South End Baseball, right? South End Baseball. Yeah. But they're all volunteers. And what, what, what we also need to do, too, is to ensure that the South End Baseballs, the other sports leagues that have been going on for a while where these coaches are seen as mentors and teachers. And like when our young folks go on to high school or to college, they always come back to the coaches. Yeah. And they always go back. And I think sometimes it's almost like we have to look at sports in a very interesting way because it's funny with somebody who say a kid doesn't learn in school, yeah. if you ask a young person, listen, you got up 12 times, you got three hits, what was your average? They know it. They know their free throw percentage. They know all of these things that are art and science 
that they're learning on a sporting field, but there's something not happening where they're learning that same way in a classroom. So the power of sports for mentoring and teaching, I use that, but I also think it's music, design, and just interest that kids have when they find a passion point. What do they learn from? And part of that, Jill, is if it's me and others, how do we help others to let folks know who are some of the legitimate people doing the great work throughout the communities? Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think you're exactly right, too. The more the tighter kids are immersed in things that they're passionate about, the easier life is really for them because they're moving in a moving through a world where they're very excited and they're surrounded by adults who care about the same things that they care about. And so there's bonds that can form there. And I, and I agree that sports is an incredible way to do that. There's different things happening in science, technology and robotics, which, you know, emulate that kind of team experience. And it would be incredible to see that happen around other key interests of kids. Sports is science. If you really look at it, sports is science. And how do we make that connection between the science and sports and bring that together. Well, so how do you think about the Boys and Girls Club over the next decade? What What is the work that you want to do to, and, and I'm curious about one, you know, are there programs that you want to implement or go deeper into? And also, remember the last time I spent time with Boys and Girls Club, they talked a lot about how they lose kids right around the time they, you know, kind of move into adolescence. And yeah is retaining 15, 16, 17-year-olds as part of the program, is that important, do you think, for, you know, driving this pipeline of youth that, you know, moves to college and moves into businesses here in the city? Yes, Jill. One is three months in, and part of this is somewhere in the next month, I'm going to be rolling out some of our thinking, but a couple of things. One is from going and us talking about how we're supporting kids is a great thing. But, you know, we're going to shift some of the language, again, as I said earlier, about building this talent pipeline. Part of what we also have to make sure we're looking at is there's probably three big areas that we have to focus on. And one of the most important things is health, health and wellness, the mental, emotional, social, and physical health of our young folks are at stake right now. And I'm Kevin Churchwell, the CEO of um, Boston um, Children's Hospital, who's on our board, has stated that. We're at this crossroads right now around health and wellness for our young folks and families. So that's going to be an area we're really going to prioritize right now, especially around the mental, social, and physical well-being and the trauma that our young folks are facing. And and just out of curiosity, because we're kind of doing it, well, we should talk about this later too, but we're doing a deep dive into this and, you know, how do you get scalable solutions into communities because this whole one-on-one practitioner to patient is just that ratio doesn't exist for around mental health. Do you think about new programming? Do you think about helping kids understand their brains better? Do you think about the power of the brain? How, how, which is, I'm just curious that your top line thoughts on how we help kids. How do you think about that at the Boys and Girls Club? So, so one of the first things that we're going to really look to do is we have Kevin Churchwell, who's on our board, Dr. Joe Betancourt out of Mass General Hospital, Thea James out of BMC. We have Kane Hayes at Point 32 Health. We're going to pull together some of Boston's experts that are connected to um, the Boys and Girls Clubs, either on our board of committees, and really start to talk to them and get their best thoughts and ideas of where we need to be focusing on. And we're also going to be looking at our space, our clubs, because our clubs are serving kids from 2.30 on. Can we use our clubs in the morning or on weekends in a different way around health and wellness? But our first thing is going to be how are we going to bring together the depth 
of experts and expertise to do that. And I actually believe, in particular, Kevin Churchwell and the work he's doing, he's already done the research and, and has the data on areas that we can be useful and helpful. And we're going to prioritize that. And we've also made a priority already to put more social workers in our clubs. And that's just a start. I think the second thing you know, that we're going to be looking at is this whole idea of academic and life success. How do we ensure that we continue to keep providing the homework support and everything we have, also providing access to young folks to visit colleges and, and things of that nature, but also getting our folks ready who aren't ready for college into jobs and workforce. We have a program ready to work. We need to build that ready to work on steroids, right? We need to do even more of that. And I think what you actually hit on, we have to prioritize how do we engage our teens into the program and not lose teens. And I think some of that's going to be how we're going to look at our programs, if it's sports and others. How are we going to look at some of the career opportunities that we have for our young folks? And I actually think we have this great opportunity to look at Saturday programming and focusing on Saturday programming around some work with teenagers and others as well. So we know teens is a priority that we're focusing on as we're moving forward. But just focusing on teens is one. But what are the things we're going to need to put in place that excite and inspire teens to want to come back and to get involved and to know that there's going to be this, these opportunities in a pipeline for them if they're looking to go to college and or if they're looking um, to jump in the workforce. The, the Boys and Girls stuff has done a great job with the, the, the work stuff. We want to build on that. I want to bring some of the stuff we did at the base around the whole educational pipeline because I really believe we're very successful with that around scholarships, scholarship support. We were running an associate's degree college on site during the morning. Like I said, we have space in our, in our clubs. So I think we have an opportunity to figure out how to better serve our teenagers. But even then, how do we also use the space we have during the mornings, late at night and on weekends to even better serve our community as well. So um, we go back many years ago, schools used to be like the settlement house of neighborhoods. I'd love the boys and girls clubs to be seen as that settlement house that all of a sudden we could provide much needed services to our communities because we're approximate in those neighborhoods. And as you said, surrounded by Boston public schools right. in every neighborhood we're in. Right. Would you like to see better collaboration between Boston Public Schools and Boys and Girls Club? There, I, I mean, think we a... have to, Jill. We yeah. have to. Yeah. And, and that's a priority for us. There's things we do that we could support the public schools. And one of the things that we're going to be open to is how do we look at the schedules of our staff? So if we can also offer programs in the school during the day, I'd love that. I'd love if we could also actually provide access to some of the schools to use our space if it's for swimming, it's using our gyms, participating in our music programs. So I think we have this opportunity. And let me tell you, like, in a few of our clubs, the majority of the kids in a few of our clubs are all Metco kids. And we're excited that Metco is partnered with us to do that. But we're in neighborhoods surrounded by Boston Public Schools. So that is one of my top priorities, is how do we build relationships with the system, but a lot of our work is going to have to be on the ground in the neighborhoods. And Jill, as we all know, the school system has the money right now to figure out what the heck they're going to do. And we cannot lose this track 
and this money goes to waste and we did not invest in community partnerships that are going to actually move the needle. Well, and that's exactly what the money is supposed to be for, right? All of the ESSER funding. You're talking about the ESSER funding that's coming yes. from the U.S. government over the next three years, and, and it's supposed to be spent on rectifying all of the problems that the pandemic caused or just made worse. And so I, I'm completely with you. If, if you can help build connective tissue within communities where you're, all of the things that you're talking about happen, including there being more symbiosis between the boys and girls clubs that sit there right next to the schools. It, you know, it's good for everyone. It's certainly good for supporting families who are still digging their way out of what, what's happened to all everyone over the past couple of years. And, and we also want to be that partner with other youth serving organizations, not just us. How are we a bridge in supporting each other? And, and let's be real, if we're looking at the neighborhoods we're in, there's other youth serving organizations how do we look like and we start to regionalize our own communities that there shouldn't be a competition amongst us. It should be how are we coming together to best serve our young folks, you know, as well as families. And I don't want to try to do something that another community based organization could do. I want to partner with them to figure out how do we do it better. Absolutely. Robert, I could talk to you for hours. I want to talk to you some more about some things that we just kind of touched on a little bit, but thank you so much for spending time with me today and doing this podcast. Jill, thank you for having me on. And honestly, I want to just commend you and thank you for your courageous, not honestly, your courageous leadership in this city and that you stand on behalf of our young folks, their education and their opportunities. Thank you, Robert. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Robert Lewis Jr., President and CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Robert is working every day to provide investment and opportunity for the young people in our city, and his spirit, his vision, and his love for Boston are so inspiring. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.